Good morning, guys. Thank you. Uh, my name's Chris, one of the pastors here. It's always a joy to be in this room preaching and teaching the Word of God. This is a beautiful story out of 2 Samuel chapter 9. I'm excited to get into it with you guys. And so we're going to be continuing today our sermon series looking at the life of King David. And so if you've got your Bibles, open them up there. And I want to preach a message called The King Invites Misfits to the Table. A King Invites Misfits to the Table. What I want to show you guys out of this story is this beautiful picture we get from King David of how he is a king that keeps his promises to his people. And he's going to invite the most unlikely, the lame, the outcast, the poor, the person with a bad uh, reputation and the wrong last name. He's going to invite that person to his king's table, and it is going to be a reminder that we worship a Jesus who invites the unlikely to the table of grace. Amen? That's where we're going this morning. Now, before we jump in, let me ask you guys the question. Have you ever received an invitation to a party or into a relationship or into an internship or into some kind of leadership position that honestly you just flat out didn't deserve? Do you know that feeling where somebody extends that invitation to you and you're kind of looking at them like, Really? Do you have the right person? Did you mean to talk to me? Am I supposed to get that phone call? Was I supposed to get that email? You kind of go, are you for sure that you meant me? And uh, I, I don't know, maybe in high school you had that moment where uh, maybe you were mildly socially awkward, had a bad haircut, braces, and acne. Okay, maybe that was just me. Okay, good. Um, but, but the lunchroom was filled with all of the different social groups. Do you guys remember this moment? You had like the super athletic kids over here and then like the people who like uh, do band over here and then the theater kids and then the goth kids that wear makeup. Anyways, okay, so you never know. And then there's that one person who you don't know where to sit and they just say, hey, we got a seat for you. You can come sit with us. And it means something, doesn't it? Uh, maybe you were just kind of average in sports and the coach said, hey, I want you on my, your, our, our team. I want you to play for me. I want to develop you. I see something in you that you don't even see in yourself, and it matters. Maybe there was a boss who just saw something in you and invited you to a leadership development program or an internship or into a boardroom to have a discussion that, honestly, you're looking around the room like, how did I get in this room? Have you ever had that moment? Maybe it was a pastor who, uh, even though you were kind of in process in your faith or, or a mentor who... Even though you were young in your faith, saw something in you and said, hey, I want you to be, go on this mission trip with me. And you're like, really? Like, you want me to go on the trip with you? I'm not ready for that, but sure, I appreciate the invitation. I've had all kinds of invitations like that in my life, but one of them mattered when I was in college at uh, the Harvard of the Midwest. You guys have probably heard of it. It's called Wayne State College. Internationally known for its affordable education. Anyways, um, it's always a red flag when the motto's affordable, okay? So, um, <laughs> But when I was there, I, I met Jesus my freshman year in college, came to know Christ, and college students shared uh, the gospel with me, and I received an invitation to know and walk with Jesus. But how many of you guys know when you come to faith in Jesus, you come a little like busted, a little messy, you come into the world like a baby, which means you make a hot mess of a lot of things. And so I was very much in progress. There was a guy on campus named Joe Julian, and he's a pastor here at City Light now, and he kind of gives leadership to our Midtown campus. But but before he was a pastor and a father and all of those things, he was just a cool upperclassman who was more spiritually mature than me at Wayne State College. And uh, it, it was during my freshman year where Joe looked at me and he said, listen, um, I see you, I see potential in you. And later on in college, Joe was a guy who said, listen, um, even though you're very messy in your faith, like I was in a place in my life where uh, I was still figuring out how, um, you know, like praying and cussing aren't supposed to happen at the same time. 
Like, I'm trying to figure out the ground rules. Like, supposedly it's okay to be messy and authentic, but it's not okay. Anyways, I was trying to learn the ground rules, okay? You got me? So uh, Joe was a dude who saw me and said, listen, I want you to be my roommate. I want to I be a mentor to you. I want to be in a relationship with you. He, he was moving towards me when, when others might have been moving away from me. And it absolutely mattered that Joe invited me to be his roommate. Uh, so have you had a moment like that? I say all of that, and I ask that question, and I tell that story about kind of a scandalous invitation because that's exactly what's going to happen in this story. King David is going to invite the most unlikely of candidates into his home, into his palace, and to get around his kitchen table. And it is going to be a picture of grace to us. And, and just so, to, to remind us of where we're at in this story, David is in the, in the absolute high mark of his leadership as king, okay? So he is thriving as a king. God's people are flourishing in Israel. This is a high mark. And if you guys remember, it hasn't always been like this, has it? God promised David that he would be king at a young age. And, uh, and then from there, it was like kind of David was on the rise. Like he defeated Goliath, this, this huge giant of a man, this enemy that mocked God's people, just straight defeated this man in battle. Then he marries Saul, the current king's uh, daughter. So he marries the princess. He moves into the palace. He becomes a military leader. And then what happens? You guys know the story. Saul, uh, the current king of Israel, gets very jealous of this young emerging leader, David. He gets envious and secure, and so he makes it his goal to what? Eliminate David from the equation. And so he goes on this uh, uh, kind of hunt for David. He's trying to assassinate. He's throwing spears at David. It gets pretty dysfunctional pretty quickly, doesn't it? So David's no longer on the rise. Then he goes into a season where he's on the run. He's hiding in caves. He's running for his life. Not a good situation. Finally, Saul and his son, Jonathan, get killed in battle. And David becomes king of Israel. And then Gavin reminded us, even when he became king, he ended up in this messy middle place where there was civil war and all this political jockeying. And it was crazy dramatic for years on end. But all of that season and all of that drama is behind him. Okay, David is in a place of flourishing. All of the the tribes that make up the nation of Israel, they are supporting David's leadership. David hasn't just brought unity inside of this nation, but he's brought peace to the borders. He's been a good king. He's fought some battles. He's pushed back all of his enemies on the borders and brought peace to this nation. And so you've got God's king, God's anointed king, leading God's people in God's promised land. If you read all of your Old Testament, this would be one of the high markers in the Old Testament for God's people. This is a picture of God's blessing on their king and on this nation and on these people. And that's where we find them today. And the question on the table is, will this king, now that he's in power and he has influence and God's kept his promise, will him, David, will he be a king who keeps his promises to his people? And will he be a king who understands and moves towards and pursues those who are weak? Or will he just be a king that networks with the strong? What kind of king will King David be? And before we jump in, I just want to give us a little reminder of how we read our Bibles. Uh, It's easy to read our Bibles like we're King David and make ourselves to be the hero of the story. And we want to rush off to be David, but really who we are in this story is we are going to be Mephibosheth. We're going to be the weak and the outcasts that get invited in. And David is going to serve as a picture and a preview and point us forward to the person and work of Jesus Christ. David is going to keep his promise, just like Jesus would keep all of his promises to us. And David is going to invite the weak and the outcast to be near, just like Jesus, King Jesus, our ultimate, eternal, better king, will come and do just that. So we even in this picture get to see a preview of who Jesus Christ is. Amen? 
That's where we're going today. Two observations out of this text. If you've got your notes, you can follow along. The first one is that God's king, God's king remembers his promises. That God's king remembers his promises. Let me show you guys this. Let's jump in. Verse one, here's what it says. And David said, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Okay, we got one verse and I got to preach here because this is shocking, okay? This would not have been the headline that the Old Testament saints would have been expecting as they pick up the story. I told you guys, just an introduction to the character. Saul once tried to kill David, okay? He hunted this man. He threw spears at this man. He made it his goal to assassinate David. And now the tables are turned, aren't they? David is in leadership. David's in a position of strength. And now Saul's family members are in a vulnerable position. What you would have been expecting as you read this story is finally David has permission to get revenge, to show wrath, to get payback, to level the score, not to show kindness to someone who once saw him as an enemy. That would have been shocking for the Old Testament saints. They would have been saying, really? David, you want to find Saul's grandchildren to be a blessing to them after this man cursed you, chased you around, separated you from your family, made you hide in caves? You want to show him kindness? That's in every way what you don't deserve as a people. And you've got to come to this question and ask, why? Why would he do such a thing? Why would kindness be in his heart towards these people? And he says in verse 1, he wants to do it for who? Jonathan's sake, which would have pointed you back to 1 Samuel chapter 18 and 1 Samuel chapter 24, where David, when he was coming up and would be future king, he made a covenant with Saul and Jonathan. And here's how the conversation and the promise was made. Saul and Jonathan, uh, Saul was the king. Uh, Jonathan was the prince. He was next in line to be king. But they recognized that God had anointed King David, that he would be the next king of Israel. And so they basically looked at David and said, hey, here's the deal. We see God's presence and power on you, David. We see God's hand on you, David. God has made a covenant with you that you will be the next king. And we want to honor that and we see that. But here's the one thing that we ask. That when you become king of Israel, that you would be a blessing to our children and our offspring. That you would not eliminate us. That you would not harm us. That you would not take us out. That you would not enact revenge. But that you would show kindness to us. And David made a promise in that moment. He said, I will honor that covenant. I will make a covenant with you and I will be a king that keeps my word to you. I will not harm your family. I will be a blessing to your family. And now King David wakes up. He's in power. He's in the palace. He's ruling in Jerusalem. He's wearing that crown. He's sitting on that throne. And David realizes that he has an opportunity to keep a promise that he made to a people a long time ago. And so here's where we go. We see how is he going to keep this promise. That is what's happening. That's the thrust. This is not just David being nice to a random person. Like we have to understand what's rooting this kindness is a promise that's been made. And that is what's going to motivate him with a sense of urgency to make good on that promise. Okay. So the first thing he does is he goes and finds a guy named Ziba. Okay. And Ziba was once a servant of Saul. And that meant that he would have known where all of Saul's offspring, grandchildren, great-grandchildren were. He said, he basically, David calls this man in and he wants to have a conversation to locate all of those who are in the house of Saul so he can be a blessing to them. Let me show you guys this in verse three. Here's what it says. And it says, the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show, ki- show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. This crippled man who's uh, crippled in his feet is named Mephibosheth, okay? Mephibosheth. How many of you guys named your kid Mephibosheth? You didn't take that one? It's still available. It'd be pretty unique, wouldn't it? Yes, it would. 
This is our boy, Mephibosheth. Oh, wow. Bet he has a great personality. Okay. Uh, so, so, right? So, okay, so that's what's happening here. And, and uh, basically, you, you've got to catch this, this heartbeat of David. He says, I'm looking for um, Saul's grandchild, uh, which there's only one remaining. All of Saul's sons have died in battle or been murdered. All of his grandchildren are missing, and there's only one remaining in the house of Saul. And David's posture is, I want to show them the kindness of God. The kindness of God. And that is like this word here. I don't quote Hebrew often, okay? I am from Wayne State. But this Hebrew word here is hasad, okay? It, it means the steadfast love of God. It's translated all throughout your Old Testament as the steadfast love of God. David is saying, I want to keep my promises to David and Jonathan. I want to be a king that makes good on my promises. And I am going to show the same steadfast love of God that has been shown to me. I am going to pour that out onto Mephibosheth, the most unworthy of candidates. He's saying that that word, it means the unmerited, unconditional, un, un, unearned love of God towards you and I. It's the love of God that makes a promise to an, a, a broken people and keeps its promise to his people. It's the love that shows mercy and grace and loyalty and, and perseveres. It's It's a covenant-keeping love of God. It's the unmovable love of God towards us, his people. He's saying, I'm going to show that to Mephibosheth, okay? That's what's happening here. And just like the Old Testament saints would have come to to this and said, why? Why, David, would you want to show the love of God to this man, Mephibosheth? Think about what this family did to you. Think about how they separated you from your family. Think about how they slandered you. Think about what they've taken from you, David. Why would you want to make good on that promise? And why would you want to show that kind of kindness to that kind of person who could never pay you back? We have to come to the gospel story in the New Testament, look at the cross of Jesus Christ, and not just talk about what happened, but ask the question, why? Why would the king of all kings sing his, send his very own son to die on a cross for our sins? Why would God give us his very best when we were at our very worst? Why would God, through Jesus Christ, receive rejection so that we could be ultimately accepted by our Father? Why would God pay such an ultimate price to me and you? Why would he pursue us? Why would he show us his steadfast love? Do you guys know why God did what he did in the gospel story on the cross through the personal work of Jesus Christ? It's because what motivated that beautiful story of redemption is a God who looked at a broken people like me and you and said, I've made a promise. I've made a covenant. I will be your God and you will be my people and I will show you my steadfast kindness. Do you guys understand at Calvary, something random didn't just take place. God didn't just decide to step into the story and die on the cross for your sin one day. He had made a promise long ago. And so what you see in the gospel story is this act of beautiful sacrificial love. But underneath that act of sacrificial love is a God who made a promise to me and you and who was making good on his promise to me and you. Amen? Now, I don't want to just make this statement. Because here's what I know. Some of you guys will say, okay, I get it. God is a, a promise maker and a promise keeper. But I just want to show you. Can I just show you a couple of the promises in the Old Testament that get fulfilled in the gospel so you can understand how our king, the one that we worship, is a promise maker and promise keeper? I'm going to show you guys a couple. Follow with me. First promise that God makes in the Bible, the very first one happens in Genesis chapter 3. Verse 15, here's what happens. Sin just enters into the world, and uh, we know that Satan, through a snake, uh, a serpent, deceives Adam and Eve. They fall into sin. They are hiding. 
hiding in shame and guilt. They're hiding in a bush. They're separated from God. And God doesn't move away from his creation. He steps towards them and he makes them this beautiful promise that there will be born a child. One will come from the womb of a woman who will step on the head of the serpent and crush Satan once and for all. There will be one who comes who will not be deceived, but who will defeat Satan once and for all. His name is Jesus Christ. Then you go to Isaiah chapter 7, and there's this promise, another promise that builds on that promise. And he says, there's going to be one born of a virgin, and there will be a child, and they're going to name him Emmanuel. Well, you know what that means? God with us, y'all. God is going to step into his own creation to time and space. He's going to put on flesh. He's not moving away from broken people. He's moving towards broken people. He ain't moving out of the ghetto. He's moving into the ghetto. You know what I'm saying? He's moving towards the, the stank and the smell and the brokenness and the hurt and the wounds. He's not avoiding it. He's coming to your neighborhood. And that's what God would do through the person of work of Jesus Christ. And then Isaiah 53 He makes this promise that there would be this Savior who would be born. He would come, and what would he do? He would suffer, and he would die, and he would bleed, not for his sins, but for our sins. He would take on the wrath of God so the people of God didn't have to and could experience the kindness of God once and for all. And then you go to Isaiah 63, this promised Savior who would come, and he would preach good news to the weary. He would bind up the brokenhearted, and that he would set the captive free. Amen? And did all of these promises not say yes and amen in the personal work of Jesus Christ? Y'all, Jesus kept every promise that he made to his people. And Jesus showed up and said, I am a king that can be trusted because I will keep my word to my people. Amen? Amen. Now, I want to show you the character and nature of God. Maybe one way to think about it is this. Um, This last weekend, my... uh, my wife has three sisters. She's one of four daughters, and uh, the youngest, named Alexis, just got engaged. And we celebrated it. He's a good dude. He loves Jesus. Good family. She loves the Lord. They're walking with God. But we got tasked to throw the engagement party, okay? So after they get engaged, they want to come over to our house. But uh, Alexis is down in Lincoln. She's a part of a sorority and has been very active in her sorority. And so all of her friends that are at this party are sorority girls. And here's what I learned about sorority girls. They make like four times the amount of noise that an average woman makes, okay? (laughs) And so we're all huddled up, picture in our house, like there's this door, and they're going to walk in. She walks in, Alexis walks in with her new fiance, and she's like, he put a ring on it, you know, and they're just going crazy. And then all of the girls have got their phone, their Snapchat, and they're all yelling, and there's glitter shooting out everywhere somehow, and so much noise. It still hurts my ear, still hurts. They're screaming and dancing, and I couldn't understand. Now, there was a lot of excitement, okay? A lot of excitement in our house. And, and maybe you're there. Maybe you just got engaged. You just fell in love. You just got married. You just had your first kid, and that's all. We're very excited about all of those things, okay? But you know what gets my attention now at this age of my life? Isn't just somebody who put a ring on it, but who kept their commitment. When I see a man walk in the door with his bride, and he's got no hair or gray hair, and his face looks wrinkly, and his hands are tired and weary, and he walks in with his bride. And you know he's been married to that same woman 30, 40, 50, 60 years, and he's still loving her even though she's growing weak and dim and tired in her body. He still delights in her. You look at that man, and anybody who's been married more than a hot minute, you understand the temptation is to leave, not stay. There's moments in your marriage where it feels more convenient to cut and run than stay and keep your covenant. And when you look at that man who's been faithful to that woman and you see him love her sacrificially, even though you know on this side of eternity there might not be a payback, you have to say, what is motivating that man to love in that sacrificial, faithful way? It's a covenant. 
he looked at that woman at one day and he said, I will love you and give you my very best for every day that I have on this side of eternity. I will love you in sickness and in health. And when you see that man sacrificially serving his bride in, in sickness and in health, what you have to say is there's a man who keeps his promises. Amen? Can we just celebrate around this church with some men like that? Can we clap for some men that have kept their covenant? Listen. I say all of that to tell you, is that not a picture in the character of our God? That he is a God who makes promises to his people and he keeps his promises to his people. And, and this is a huge deal because in a room like this, I just wonder what your story is. I, I just know that people have been wounded by fathers who did not keep their promise to their sons and daughters. By spouses who said they made a promise that they would stay and they left. By bosses who said they, the bonus is coming if you just keep grinding and the bonus never came. There's been promises made and promises broken, and we've felt the weight of that, have we not? And here's the thing, like, like some of you guys are lawyers, and you have a really secure job. You guys know why we need lawyers? Because people don't keep their promises. <laughs> we need a legally binding contract now with clearly defined consequences to breaking that contract because we're not natural, we're not natural in following through with our word. And so not only have we been broken by, we're not hurt by other people's promises that have been broken, but... Can we just acknowledge the fact that we're not just victims here, but that we're promise breakers ourselves? See, one of the things that happens when you read this text is you fall in love with the character and nature of God, but you also have to look inward and say, I'm not like that king. Like I've looked at God myself and said, God, this is the last time I'll ever do that. God, I'm not gonna do that anymore. God, that was the last time. God, I promise. God, I'm gonna do more next year. God, I promise I'm gonna start giving now. God, I promise I'm gonna be more patient with my wife. God, I, I promise I'll be slow to anger with my kids. God, I promise this. And have we not broken our own promises to God? And so I know it's getting real up in here. You're like, oh, okay, where's the positive, encouraging K-love? Thought this was a fun story. It's gonna get there. But before I just hype you up with some good news, I want you to feel the weight of this. That Jesus Christ is the only promise maker and promise keeper in the room. And that's okay. Because if there's guilt and there's shame and you've evaluated the way that you broke your promises to God and to other people, I hope you feel the weight of that. And yet I also hope you feel the simultaneous lifting of God's grace because in heaven, there'll be one king who sits at the head of the table. His name will be Jesus Christ. And he alone will be the one who makes and keeps his promises. Everybody else will have the seat at the table by grace and grace alone. Amen? That is the good news of the gospel. And so what we see here is I hope that you guys rest in that. I hope that you guys rejoice in that. In Jesus Christ, we have a king who keeps his promises. He remembers his promises. Number two, I want to show you guys next back in the story that our king delivers on his promises. Our king is going to deliver on his promises, okay? So let me get you back into the story. All of a sudden, Ziba gets tasked by, uh, to go and find any of the offspring of Saul. There's only one left. His name is Mephibosheth, okay? So he's on a hunt to go and find Mephibosheth. And here's what we learn about him in verse 4. He's hiding out in a city called Lodabar. You know what Lodabar means? Lodabar literally means city with no bread, okay? It is not a vacation destination. This is not Tahiti, y'all, okay? This is not Cancun. This is more like uh, you took a wrong turn off the interstate and landed in Council Bluffs. That's where... <laughs> We love you, Council Love. We love you. But I'm just saying, I grew up in North Omaha, and I thought I had it bad. And then I went to Council Bluffs. So I was like, I can't wait to get back to North Omaha, okay? Um, <laughs> contact my lawyer. Anyways, um, so <laughs> all that to say, he's not in a good place in his life. Uh, if you could just 
Come, just follow me with this story for a second. Picture yourself as Mephibosheth, okay? Uh, here's who you were. You were born a grandson of a king. You were born the son of a prince. And all of a sudden, in one day, your grandfather and your father get murdered in battle. They, they get defeated in battle, and so uh, they, they, they're gone. And you find yourself an orphan in a moment. And it says in this text that he's lame in the feet. Well, how did he become lame in the feet? You've got to ask that question. Well, luckily, the Bible actually tells us in 2 Samuel chapter 4 that on the very day that Saul and Jonathan lost in battle their lives, their, his nurse, Mephibosheth's nurse, at five years old, he's just a little boy, um, she's running the, from the palace because she thinks somebody is going to pursue her, which would have been custom. When the king goes down, people come after the king's family, okay? And so she takes off running, and in haste, she drops Mephibosheth. He falls, he, uh, and he becomes lame in the feet and in a moment he becomes a crippled and what would have been a regular life for him in this place is taken away from him in a moment okay so now he's an orphan now he's got lame feet moreover in this part of his life he's hanging out in a place called Lodabar nobody's dreamed to be there okay um, additionally his name has changed in first kings uh, we understand that he was named Meritabal which means a contender of Baal do you know that Jonathan was a godly man, his father, and he, he must have prayed over his son. This is going to be a son who, who contends for the glory of God, who fights against idol worship and, and fights against idol gods like Baal in that land. And he said, this is going to be a son who fights for God and his glory. And now his name is Mephibosheth. You know what that means? Son of shame. So now all of a sudden, you're not in the king's palace anymore. You're in a place called Lodabar, city with no bread. You're no longer a, a man working for the glory of God. Your name means son of shame. You've got lame feet, which would have mean in a, in a culture where the strong were propped up. They picked Saul based on his external strengths. I mean, this is still a culture that was in love with appearances. And, and if you had a, a paralyzing effect, this man, his whole life was begging for bread. He was dependent on other people's charity. You know, he would have carried himself with a sense of shame, not a sense of dignity. Why? Because his king, his, his grandfather used to be king. Now he's just a holdover from the previous line and lineage. He was a nobody. He was the guy in town who had the wrong last name. Nobody wanted to do business with Mephibosheth. He's unable physically to change and transform his situation. He can't have one of those, I started at the bottom, now we hear kind of stories, okay? He just can't physically do it. Doesn't own land, has the wrong last name. He's outside hanging out in a place called Lodabar. He's an orphan child with no family. This is not a good situation. Ultimately, Zebia, Z-I-B-A, whatever that is, Zebia, Zabia, Zeb, Zeb, we're going to call him Captain Z, Z Sizzle. I don't know, whatever his name is, all right? He shows up, he knocks on the door and says, hey, listen, the king's looking for you. Now imagine this moment, okay, if you're Mephibosheth. The king is looking for you, okay? And here's what you think. Okay, we know what's going to happen because we know the intro to the story. But picture yourself here. Like, he would have been overcome with fear thinking, if the king ever finds me, surely he's going to try to settle a score for the way that my grandfather sinned against him. And we, we know who David is. But listen, David is also a warrior, y'all. Like, he killed bears and lions in white and field. He literally cut off Goliath's head. Like, who wants to tell that story to the kids' ministry? And then Goliath went down, and he got over him with the sword. You know, like, so David had seen some people breathe his last breath, okay? And so now you know this feeling had to, as he's traveling from Lodabar to Jerusalem, he has to be thinking, this is either going to go really bad, good or really, really bad for me. 
And some of you guys know that feeling. In, in, in less significant ways, maybe you got an email from the boss, and the boss said, I want to see you in my office right now. And you're like, I'm either getting promoted or I'm taking my stuff home in a box today, you know? For me, I was trying to explain this tension to my wife, and I said, it's kind of like when I got a note saying, you got to go to the principal's office. The principal wants to see you right away. And I said, for me, my heart just sunk because I knew it was not going to go well, okay? Like, I was just going to be in trouble. They found out, okay? I didn't always do my own Spanish homework, okay? Surprise, all right? <laughs> Why y'all judging like you always did yours? Okay, so... She, she said, I don't really get that. When they said, come to the principal's office, that I usually won an award. I was like, okay, well, good for you. Good for you. Okay. So glad that you showed up and did your own homework. Anyways. So, so that was the feeling that had to happen. So finally we get the stages set. Mephibosheth is hanging out at the palace. Finally, there two are in the same room. So let's pick it up in verse six. It says, and Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his faith and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth, I love that he calls him by name. And he answered, behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, look at these first three words, do not fear. Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table. When? Always. This is a three-sided blessing from, uh, from David onto Mephibosheth. He calls him in and he said, listen, I am going to bless you. I'm going to show the steadfast love of God to you. I am going to show the kindness to you. And there's three parts. Number one, fear no more. Fear no more. The days of waking up wondering, is the king mean harm to you? Those days are done. I'm not coming after you with wrath, but I'm coming after you and I've brought you in to show you kindness. I am going to give you this day everything that you don't deserve and you have not earned. And isn't it true before the gospel that it would be right for us to fear our king? And yet the New Testament says that the days of fear are over because perfect love casts out all fear, y'all. You ain't got to fear the king. You get to delight in the king. And number two, I'm going to restore to you all that was once yours. Saul's, all his land, all his possessions, it's now yours, which means to you, to Mephibosheth, the days of begging for bread are over. Land meant significance and status and economic wealth. All you have moved from poverty to wealth in this absolute gracious blessing from King David. And finally, the last thing he says is the most scandalous of all. He says, finally, you are going to sit at the king's table always. I'm not having you over for dinner once and calling it good like you are just a charity case. You will sit with princes and princesses. You will sit with the strong and the proven. There is not another place in the entire kingdom more secure, more safe, more abundant, more full of life and laughter, protection and significance than a seat at the table next to the king. You were far off and now you're gonna be brought near into relationship. That's the invitation that God gives. And you know what he's communicating? He's communicating in my kingdom, the orphan will find a family. In my kingdom, around my table, with my, me as king, there's room for the weak at the table. In my kingdom, at my table, the outcast will be brought in. At my table, in my kingdom, the one who's been rejected by many will be accepted. The lame will be loved. The orphan will adopt it. The, the one who was shamed will have a seat of dignity. In my kingdom, that's how the table of grace is going to look. Amen? Is that not a beautiful picture of the gospel? And you come to this story and his only response, Mephibosheth's only response here is, who am I? I'm just a dead dog. And I think this is such a, a beautiful picture of who we are. Mephibosheth is actually, um, 
he's modeling to us the right response to the gospel good news. He doesn't say, yeah, I saw that coming. I've been working real hard to get this promotion. It's about time you found me, elevated my status. He says, who am I? I've got nothing to offer. I'm a dead dog. Okay, listen, a dead dog doesn't have any way of paying people back. It's a rather um, unstrategic partner, okay? But listen, what David does here is he doesn't even answer the question, who am I but a dead dog? He just continues the blessing. He looks at Ziba and he says, listen, Ziba, just like you served Saul, guess what? You're going to serve Mephibosheth. You're going to um, farm all of his land. You, you and your sons are going to be servants to him. And, uh, and so this way, uh, he can sit at king's table, at the king's table, and you can work his land for him. This is what's going to happen. And then we get this summary verse in verse 11 through 13. Let me read it to you. So Mephibosheth ate at the king's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. He was lame in both his feet. So what a beautiful picture of grace, amen? You've got this man who was on the outside in Lodabar, and now he's sitting at the king's table, living in the king's palace. You've got a man who was once defined by a name of shame, and now he's living in a place of status and dignity and protection. You had a man who was once an orphan, and now he's got a family, you got a man who was once fearful of the king, who once now gets to delight in and reside with the king. How did all of his situation change? What happened to flip his circumstances? I'll tell you what happened. He understood that a king made a promise and this king was making good on this promise. He understand that he got his seat at the table, not because he achieved something, but simply because he said yes to an invitation of a gracious, covenant-keeping, promise-keeping, amazing, steadfast, loving king who had pursued him and invited him into that place. Amen? This is such a picture of us. What does this have to do with me and you? Listen, if you're here today and you think Christianity is about you becoming a better version of yourself, you have missed the story. If you think what God wants for you is just to move from weakness to strength, from bad to good, you have missed the hope and the heartbeat of Christianity. If you're looking at the Ten Commandments saying, maybe I'll just get a little bit better And God will finally accept me once and for all. You're missing how you experience relationship with the king, Jesus Christ. How do you and I have eternal life? That's the question that this text answers. We say yes to an invitation from King Jesus that is not earned, but is simply received by grace. And so it is, first of all, the most humbling thing to be a Christian. Because we have to acknowledge that we are Mephibosheth. Some of you guys are strong. You have great jobs. You're good parents. You're great husbands and wives. All of that's awesome. But you want to know who you are before a holy and righteous God? It says we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are Mephibosheth, unable to remedy our situation and reconcile the separation we have with our creator. And Jesus Christ, the good news is that he's the kind of king that comes running after people like me and you. That he's the king who kept his promise. He came from heaven to earth to seek and save the lost. He lived the perfect life, the sinless life, to earn and purchase for us a righteousness that we don't deserve. And he died a death, taking on the wrath of God, so we no longer have to fear the king, but we get to delight with the king. That's what Jesus Christ did for us. And he did it so he can invite Mephibosheths like me and you, misfits like me and you, poor and outcasts like me and you, promise breakers like me and you, to the table once and for all. Who am I? I'm Mephibosheth. Your pastor is a promise breaker. Your your pastor is somebody who is far off. Your pastor is one who was orphaned and dead, and yet Jesus Christ has sought and saved and brought him to the table. And so the same sermon we preach about every week here, Jesus Christ is worthy. 
He stands alone in heaven and earth as the one who is faithful to unfaithful people, as the one who makes and keeps his covenant, as the one who pursues the outcast and loves the lame. Is he not worthy, church? Let me close with this. I pray that we'd always be a people at City Light Church that shows massive sense of gratitude towards the gospel and towards this king that we find in this story. Just like King David kept his promise, Jesus did that towards us. And I think the only right response is like what Willie said earlier, um, that we would be a people who sing, say, worthy are you, Jesus Christ. Worthy are you. You are the king that has kept your promise. And I pray in our hearts we would be humble, and yet we would be secure that at the very center of our faith is not our promises to God, but is a God who kept his promise to us. Would we be those kind of people? And number two, I, I just want to pray for us, church, right now. One of the things that God was provoking in my heart is, is what would it look like for us, City Light Church, not just to be a grateful people, but to have tables that reflect the king's table on this side of eternity? What if me and you could be the kind of people who invite folks to the table who are a lot like Mephibosheth? You guys know who I'm talking about. I'm talking about people who can't pay you back, people that don't have a, a, some social network to offer. What if we started to invite the very people to, into our lives and into relationship that other people avoided? What if we invited people who look different racially, who voted different politically, who come from different corners of the city? What if our table was a table of grace where people like Mephibosheth with lame feet sat at it comfortably and felt the tangible love of God because we invited them in because Jesus Christ has invited us to be near to him? What would that be to the city, to the watching world, if our tables communicated that message that we've been accepted by grace and we extend that same kind of grace and invitation? I think it would speak loud and clear to the city because don't you guys know who gets invited to the party on this side of eternity is it not the strong and the polished and the people who have something to offer what would it look like to move towards people who had nothing to offer and simply show them the love of jesus christ amen pray that we'd be those kind of people in this city last thing for those who do not yet know jesus i just want to throw it out there the invitation is really simple the king is inviting you to the table King Jesus is a king that doesn't come to take, but he comes to give. King Jesus is a king that keeps his word and his promise. King Jesus is a uh, Jesus who said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, and my grace is sufficient for you. If you want to know, follow, love, and be known by that kind of king, all you have to do today is say, yes, I will follow and I believe in King Jesus. Would you see yourself rightly as Mephibosheth, and would you come to the king's table and be in relationship with him for all of eternity? What a beautiful invitation. I've said yes to that invitation. It changed my life. It's not just a religious game. He's a real king that will lead you and love you well. I pray that you would know him. So let's pray right now. We'll take communion. Jesus, thank you for this day. God, I thank you for the saints in this room that, God, we've seen you as the good king you are. That, God, we, a group of orphans, that we, a group of people who were far off, that we, a group of people who were lame in our feet, that we, a group of people who were but dead in our sin, God, you invited us to the table. Not because we're good, but because you are a good king. Not because we made promises to you, but you made a promise to us. And so, God, we want to say in our lips and our hearts today, thank you for being faithful, Jesus. Thank you for making dead things alive, Jesus. Thank you for taking our guilt and our shame, Jesus. Thank you for giving us a seat at the table, Jesus. Thank you for speaking life over us, Jesus. Thank you for making us sons and daughters, Jesus. God, we sit at your table now and for all of eternity because you're a good king. God, I want to pray for those in this room. I just pray if you're here today and you want to know the king in that way, would you pray with me right now? Jesus, I say yes to you and your invitation. God, I acknowledge that I've sinned. 
fallen short of your glory. I've rebelled against you. I've run from you. And God, I've been hiding from you. And yet now I come forward and want to receive an invitation to be in relationship with you today through your son, Jesus Christ. Amen, amen, amen.